The Where Our Minds Wander podcast may contain sensitive content. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings, fellow wanderers, to the places our minds wander. Where strange lights speed beyond reason across a clear night sky. The house of the end of the road where disembodied voices whisper and strange noises make the living shiver. Lurking shadows hiding on the edge of the woods just outside your back door. Odd true events throughout time that lead you down the rabbit hole. I'm Wes. And I'm Beth. And this is where our minds wander. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Where Our Minds Wander, all you fellow wanderers. I'm Wes, and that's my wife and co-host, Beth. Hello, everyone. Yes, we thought we'd put together a bonus episode for you this week. So, Wes, what are you going to start us off with tonight? Well, I'm going to be sharing two stories of red onions. But these red onions won't make you cry. (laughs) Peel away. Oh, I see what you did. (laughs) Red Onion Saloon, Skagway, Alaska. The Red Onion Saloon opened in 1897 on the corner of Broadway and 2nd Avenue in Skagway, Alaska, and was owned by Captain William Moore, Skagway's founder. A well-known saloon and casino, but due to the influx of miners during the Klondike Gold Rush, at one point there were like 10,000 miners in the town. The brothel was opened on the second floor in 1898. The second floor quickly became the finest bordella in town. Well, that makes sense. There were 10 small rooms, cribs, on the second floor. Each one had several doors in case anyone needed to leave quickly. Ah. Supposedly, the ladies working these rooms were treated pretty well, if that's possible, with a madam who provided for their needs and a bouncer whose job it was to protect not just them, but their valuables as well. I'm not sure how it could be argued that they were treated well, but anyways. Each worker had a 12-hour shift with 15 minutes for each client. Each client was charged $5, and of that $5, the worker kept $1.25 for herself, the madam took two fifty for herself, and the bouncer got the remaining $1.25. That's interesting that the bouncer made as much as the sex worker did. Well, I would imagine that being a bouncer in a saloon of a brothel would be a pretty dangerous job. I mean, imagine they got into all kinds of tussles, you know? Yeah, you're probably right. According to the article I read, earning $1.25 per client was a good wage, since legal jobs in Skagway for women were capped at $3 a day. But turnover was still pretty high, and despite there not being any recorded deaths by clients' hands, women didn't stick around very long at the Red Onion Saloon. Which is interesting, since they claim they treated the women really well. Well, maybe they got their money in, you know. Well, yeah, that's yeah. a good deal if you're getting a dollar twenty-five every fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd work there back then. Well, the way that clients chose a lady was even more peculiar because they used dolls, like literally dolls, ten of them to be exact with each one representing a different woman. Well, that's different. The dolls were seated on the bar. 
a client would choose one. The doll was laid down on the bar, and 15 minutes later, when the client returned downstairs, the doll was placed back up in a sitting position. (laughs) Yep. After 15 minutes, if the client didn't leave on time, the bouncer would come into the room and escort him out. 15 minutes does not seem like a very long time, but... (laughs) It seems to go by pretty quickly, yes. (laughs) It seems a lot longer, but... The $5 was placed in a copper tube in the room's floor and sent down a chute to the bar, landing in a safe deposit box located right behind their doll. Huh. That's pretty innovative. That is. That's that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And yes, if you visit the Red Onion Saloon today, the dolls are still there. Oh, that's cool. I hope they washed them. <laughs> the dolls didn't do anything. They were just sat up and laid down. <laughs> <laughs> they got to be feeling pretty dirty with everything they've seen go on in the place. So I, I don't know. Surprisingly. The brothel didn't last very long, just barely two years, as the gold rush dwindled down and fewer miners flooded the area. But the saloon and casino flourished. In the 1900s, the Red Onion was a popular dance hall. Then in 1914, the entire structure was moved on rolling logs to its present location, much closer to the railroad station. During World War II, it was commissioned as a barracks. In fact, throughout its life, It has been used in a variety of ways, as a pharmacy, telegraph station, bakery, gift shop, laundry, and TV station. In 1980, the Red Onion Saloon opened its doors as a fully restored saloon and restaurant with the upstairs room designated as offices and as rooms for visiting musicians. Not long after, the upstairs floor was turned into a museum honoring the brothel, which is apt since during the renovation, its belongings to the former workers were discovered, including a silver dress. Oh, cool. These found items are on display along with several pieces of the original furniture, which brings me to why I'm telling you about the Red Onion Saloon. You guessed it, it's reportedly haunted. There are three different entities said to haunt the saloon, two women and one male. The male entity isn't apparently very friendly, nor is anyone sure who he is but he has been known to brush roughly past employees and guests, and he tends to move certain objects, like keys and expensive drinks, only to set them down somewhere else completely unexpected. Of the two female entities, one is believed to be Diamond Lil, the former madam. She apparently only lets her presence known to male guests. Well, that makes sense. Some have claimed to feel a ghostly presence touching their legs, and to hear disembodied whispers in their ears. It's a little creepy. Yeah, you know, it's a brothel. You'd think she'd be, you know, like, groping more than their legs. <laughs> but She was the madam, though. She didn't have to do that. Well, she started out somewhere, too. Well, true. The second female entity has actually been seen by employees and guests. The staff refer to her as Lydia and believe she was one of the former workers from the Bordella days. She is often preceded by a strong scent of lilac perfume and lingering cold spots. When she is seen, she is wearing a long dark dress and she travels the upper floor to disappear into Diamond Lil's former room. There is a story which I can't verify that on one occasion when the saloon was closed, staff were alarmed by loud noises coming from the second floor. 
Sheriff intruders, they called the police. When the police investigated, they did see a shadowy figure running down the upstairs hall, but when they gave chase and entered the room, it was empty. Yikes. When visitors encounter Lydia, it seems that she targets the men, allegedly pushing and even scratching male visitors to the Bordello Museum. The accepted story is that Lydia took her own life, but it hasn't been corroborated by any documentation. The museum does sound cool. The Red Onion Saloon is open seasonally to coincide with the cruise ship season. But it's funny. While I was researching the place, I thought I'd found a ton of information until I realized I had stumbled upon another Red Onion. Oh. This one is from the Silver Boom era, which is slightly earlier than the Klondike Gold Rush and was a former brothel also. But it's in Aspen, Colorado. That had to be confusing when you're looking up stuff and you think you're looking at one place and then all right. of a sudden you're like, oh, wait a minute, something's not right. <laughs> yes, it was. So I'm going to move on from the Red Onion Saloon of Skyway, Alaska to the Red Onion of Aspen, Colorado. Cool. In 1890, the population of Aspen ballooned to 10,000 with the discovery of silver. In 1892, Councilman Thomas Latta bought the red brick building turning it into a premier dance hall, gambling hall, and saloon. He called it the New Brick Saloon, but due to its color, locals renamed it the Red Onion. Aha. Uh-huh. Thomas Lada was from a well-respected family in Greenberg, Pennsylvania, but he was considered the black sheep of the family, always off on some wild adventure. When the silver boom died down, Lada was able to keep the Red Onion afloat, but in 1918, he sold it to Tim Keller. It was the height of prohibition, but Keller managed to stay open by selling sandwiches. Very innovative. In 1946, World War II veteran John Litchfield purchased the Red Onion when the population of Aspen was just about 700. The Red Onion became the premier place to have a good time, especially a year later when Aspen opened its first ski resort. As Aspen became known as the place to ski, performers flocked to the Red Onion to perform. In the early 1950s, after changing ownership again, the Red Onion hosted top names like Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, Freddie Fisher, John Denver sang his hit country song, Take Me Home Country Roads, for the very first time at the Red Onion in the 1970s. That's cool. And this Red Onion just happens to be haunted too. The story most often told is that in the 1970s, two chefs at the Red Onion got into an altercation. William Doyle Dean grabbed a butcher knife and stabbed his co-worker, Billy Joe Richards. Oh, oh. Richards allegedly made it out to the alley behind the restaurant before he died. Dean was arrested and sent to prison for murder. Reportedly, employees of the Red Onion have had experiences they attribute to Richards. In one instance, the woman who came to the bar first thing in the morning to clean and get ready for opening would often find fresh footprints across the newly washed floors. That's got to be frustrating. Yeah. I mean, walking on your freshly washed floors, I'd kind of be pissed. I know. She also frequently caught sight of a man in the back of the kitchen, even though she was alone in the building. There are also accounts of other phantom footsteps and apparitions, but many of these are attributed to a madam from the bar's brothel days. Although there are no official records of a madam having been murdered there, 
The general story passed around is that one is often seen hanging around the bar. Hmm. A bouncer at the Red Onion claims that on several occasions when he was in the bar alone, also getting ready for his day, he would go down to the basement for supplies, and then he would hear someone walking the floor above him. When he would run upstairs, he would find the bar empty. That's spooky. So, two Red Onions in two different states, tied by similar histories and similar hauntings. That's very cool. Two Red Onions. Hey! Did you know, in 2007, human feet began washing up along the shores of the Salish Sea, an inland ocean spanning nearly 500 miles from Olympia, Washington, to Desolation Sound, Canada. Today, the tally is 21 feet and counting, 15 in B.C., 6 in Washington. The B.C. Coroner's Office has a map marked up with each new find. Foot number one, for example, a right found in August 2007, floated up to Jedediah Island in a generic white sneaker with navy blue accents. Foot number five in a muddy Nike, and foot number 13 wore black with Velcro. The most recent foot, found on New Year's Day in 2019 on a beach in Everett, was in an aging boot, indicating it had been out to sea for some time. What's causing this gruesome foot phenomenon? Simply put, modern-day footwear. When bodies are lost at sea, ocean creatures immediately ravage the corpse, preferring the softer bits. And since modern-day shoes, especially sneakers, have become more and more buoyant, the severed feet pop up to the surface, ride the tides, and end up on the shores of Washington State and British Columbia. Huda Thunket. So that Huda Thunket was brought to you by fellow wanderer Jess who has listened to us and supported our show from the very beginning. And we thank her for doing that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Thank you, Jess. So, Beth, where did your mind wander this week? Well, you covered one of the worst jobs in history when you talked about plague doctors in episode three. I'm offering up a contender for the title. Oh, really? Let's see what you got. Richard Munson may have had one of the worst jobs in history. At the time of his death in 1906, he was the last known sin eater. For centuries, grieving family members in England, Wales, and Scotland worried about the unconfessed sins of their recently deceased loved ones, and one way to ensure their passage to heaven was to summon the village sin eater. What was a sin eater? It was exactly what it sounds like a person who would ingest the sins of the deceased, allowing the sins to darken their own soul instead. Hope they got paid well. Mm, Not really. Which makes it one of the worst jobs in history. The earliest account of sin eating in the UK was from 1680, and even then it was referred to as a custom that had existed for a long, long time. The family would place a hunk of bread on the chest of the deceased, believing the bread would soak up all of the person's sins. They would gather around the body, eating and drinking, but among them would be the sin eater. Occasionally, the family would confess suspected sins to him. Then the sin eater would step forward, pick up the bread from the body, and then sit down on a stool facing the door. He was given a coin as payment, equal to a few dollars today, and a full bowl of ale. Then he would eat the bread that had been placed on the body, symbolically or not, 
absorbing the sins into themselves. The sin eater would then recite the following, quote, I give easement and rest now to thee, dear man. Come not down the lanes or in our meadows, and for thy peace I pawn my own soul, end quote. The baking and eating of symbolic bread in the 18th century was prevalent. Certain breads did symbolize the dead. One tradition even involved piling cakes in high heaps on the table to honor their deceased loved ones on All Souls Day. The practice of sin eating possibly has its roots in early Christianity, sin eaters playing the role of Christ in that they loosely follow his eating of bread and drinking of wine at the Last Supper, But only clergy could perform absolution legally, so performing this ritual as a sin-eater was considered heresy and was punishable by death. Of course it was. But with so many believing the sin-eater was necessary to get their loved ones into heaven, you would think the sin-eater would be revered, or at least respected, but that's not the case. Sin-eaters were greatly feared. In fact, as soon as their ritual was complete— the family members would chase the sin eater from their home. Sin eaters led a very lonely existence, since with each sin eating they performed, their soul was darkened more and more with each sin they accepted. People considered the village sin eater to be eternally damned, a performer of witchcraft or sorcery, and their fear ran so deep that they refused to look the sin eater in the eye, lest his evil soul attach to them in some way. Plus, it was also dangerous. As I had said, performing the sin-eating ritual was considered heresy and punishable by death, but it was also against the law to hire a sin-eater. You could be accused of being a heretic for doing so. So everyone kept their distance so as not to be associated with him in any way. That seems so hypocritical. Mm Mm-hmm. Often, sin-eaters lived at the outskirts of town and were shunned completely from village life. They performed the ultimate service for the community, but were despised for it. So who would do such a job? Often, sin-eaters were the most impoverished person in the village, relying on the ritual for food, drink, and the small fee. Some may have already considered themselves damned for a committed sin. So they took on the job, not believing they could be redeemed. In 1838, author Catherine Sinclair wrote in her travel log, Hill and Valley, that the men, quote, who undertook so daring an imposture must all have been infidels, willing, apparently, like Esau, to sell their birthright for a mess of pottage, end quote. She was pretty harsh. Yeah, I guess she was. Other cultures have similar traditions as well. In China, for example, a dead person's lingering sins or wickedness are sometimes ritually transferred to food, which is then consumed by their family. And in the early 20th century, families in Bavaria allegedly put a corpse cake on the deceased, which was then devoured by the nearest relative. In Italy, mourners eat cookies shaped like bones and organs, called ossi de morti, or bones of the dead. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. Germans would create a corpse cake. Pastry dough would be mixed and placed on the chest of the dead to rise. Then it would be baked and eaten by those who came to mourn the deceased. However, their belief 
was that as the dough rose, it would absorb the best qualities of the deceased, and those positive qualities would be passed on to those who ate part of the cake. Yeah, I think I'd have to be pretty freaking hungry to eat dough that sat (laughs) on a dead person. And the word scapegoat may have come from similar rituals from the Jewish faith, which are laid out in Leviticus 16. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. So that's where we get scapegoat from, which I thought was pretty cool. Right. It is really cool. But now that brings us back to Richard Munslow, the last known sin eater. Not much is actually known about him. What is known is that Munslow lived in England's Shropshire County and performed the sin eater's job until his death in 1906. Wow. Mm-hmm. Till 1906. Yep. But despite all I've mentioned, Munslow did not fit the description of who commonly took on the job. Munslow was born into a reasonably wealthy family, and he himself was a farmer, so he certainly wasn't destitute or in need of food and money to survive. According to local lore, Munslow didn't enter the sin-eating profession because of his fear for his own soul either, but out of love and kindness towards his fellow villagers. He didn't view his job as the worst in history at all, but as a needed service. Oh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's some hell of, you know, community service. Yeah. <laughs> there are some who believe he originally took on the job after the death of his four children, three of whom all died within the same week. Then, since he had already performed the ritual four times, in order to ensure his children's passage into heaven, he continued until his own death at age 73. That's a lot of children to lose in one week. I could see why. Three kids. I could see why he would turn to doing that. Yeah, so can I. But due to his side profession, he was buried at St. Margaret's Church in Rattling Hope, England, with all of the public shames always associated with the job, which I find rather sad. That's kind of bullshit. Somebody needs to make that right. They did. Oh, awesome. (laughs) They did. In 2010, the citizens of Rattling Hope, led by Reverend Norman Morris, collected a thousand pounds to restore Munslow's grave and to give him the recognition he deserved for providing such an important service to his community. Well done. I know. In the U.S., the practice of sin eating may have made its way to Appalachia, and rituals were reportedly held in West Virginia, North Carolina, Kentucky, and Virginia into the 1950s, with some unsubstantiated claims that it has resurfaced in some remote areas in the last decade. I looked extensively, and although I found this claim on several sites, all of them state that none of these claims have been validated, and I couldn't find any examples of it either. Well, I wouldn't doubt if it's out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, who's going to really come forward and say, well, I'm a modern-day sin eater? Right. And with all the foods in all the different countries where they've incorporated the idea 
of eating different things, right? it makes sense that something similar might have made its way across the ocean. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I mean, I think that gives the Plague Doctor a little bit of a run for its money. Yay! Maybe my guy came in second. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> I'll try harder next time. <laughs> you do that. <laughs> well, I guess that about wraps it up for our bonus episode. Yeah, I think so, too. We'll see all you fellow wanderers again next week for another episode. We sure will. See you soon. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to traveling with you again to the places where our minds wander. If you like what you heard, please take a moment and provide us with a five-star rating and a comment. It really helps us move up the list so people can find us. See you next week for an all-new episode of Where Our Minds Wander.